Okay, sorry about that. Thought I had it on. So the people that are watching from home, <laughs> would you like a repeat of that? <laughs> sorry about that. My, my bad. The first uh, live stream, and I don't have my microphone on. Okay, sorry about that. Anyway, we did have a great first service, and today we are going to continue uh, worshiping the Lord together. R a couple of reminders. If you are interested in picking up the Bible fellowship material or Sunday school material, that is available in the Children's Church area. You can That's laid out by uh, class, so you can go through there, pick up all the material that you would like. That will help you if you're continuing in a Zoom class or if you're doing the study 
on your own or in another group. So that, that is available to you. Just a reminder that we will be uh, dismissing uh, today from the back uh, to the front. And as you go out, if you would, uh, please go out into the outside to the parking lot there if you'd like to uh, socialize, fellowship. We had some folks doing that other. It's a beautiful day to do that. So just one, that's one of those encouragements. Uh, we're just delighted to, to be able to be here today. So we want to begin by just giving God thanksgiving and praise as we come to him in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you have made it possible for us to be able to meet together again as a, as a family, as, a, as your people, and to together with one heart and one voice bring praise and honor and glory to your name. Thank you for all these folks that have come tonight, today to uh, worship you, and we thank you for all those that are serving in the various capacities. So we thank you for this time, and we ask your blessing upon it that you would be pleased with all that happens here. So we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you would, let's stand, and we're going to sing together. Good morning, Good Shepherd. Those of you here and those of you at home, we are here to worship this morning. The first verse of Psalms 122 pretty much sums up how we feel. And I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This first song we're going to do says, we've waited for this day. We've gathered in your name. And that's how we are this morning.
you have your Bible today, I want to encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And we are continuing in our study through the book of, of Revelation. And today we come to that uh, section that uh, many people seem most interested in, the, the time when you begin to see all of the judgments and all the things that uh, uh, happen, the, the, the disastrous kinds of things. We want to begin by just looking at this text and reading this, just eight verses this morning as we, as we consider the, the beginning of the end. Also, uh, this talks in great detail about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So, if you have your Bible, read with me in chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal... I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of, of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil or the wine. And when the ram broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are always amazed at your word and what it contains and we are grateful that you have given to us this vision of the future. And we pray this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, that we might connect it to our lives, that we might apply it in the way that we live and the things that we understand this point in time. And Father, we, we depend upon you. We pray that you would oversee all that is is said and is done and is heard in this place. And so, Lord, we, we give this time to you now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the Bible teaches that the world is headed inexorably, not toward peace and unity, but, but toward a final cosmic conflict that we know as the Battle of Armageddon. And until that climactic holocaust, things on earth are going to continue to deteriorate as people fall deeper and deeper into sin and confusion. As the end approaches, 
Wars are going to increase. Crime will escalate. Uh, there will be economic upheavals unlike anything ever seen. There will be unprecedented natural disasters such as earthquakes and floods and famines and disease. And all of those calamities will mark the outpouring of the wrath of God upon a sinful and rebellious world. Now, the Old Testament prophets talk about this. They describe this in great detail. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, the, the prophet there describes Israel's sufferings during that time this way. He says, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's distress. That's another name for the time of tribulation. Isaiah chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, describes the judgment that will come upon the Gentile nations. And he says there in verse 1, Draw near, O nations, to hear and to listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And all their hosts will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. See, all of that's pretty heavy stuff. It talks about the judgment that will come. Now, let me just pause for a moment and remind you of where we are in Revelation. The Apostle John was exiled for his faith on the Isle of Patmos. And while he is there, he is given a vision in chapter 1 of the glorious, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And this glorious, risen Savior speaks directly to his churches. He speaks to the seven churches, real churches, in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. And once he has directed his attention to the churches on earth, then we are taken to heaven. In chapter 4, we see the glorious throne of God in all of his majesty. And there we find God being honored and magnified and, and worshipped as the creator of all the universe, of everything that is. And then in chapter 5, we see God holding in his hand a scroll sealed seven times. And that scroll is the title deed to all creation for which he was just praised as being the creator of. And then there is a search made throughout all creation for one who is worthy to open this incredible scroll. And it was found that Jesus, the Christ, is worthy. And Christ is going to open these scrolls one at a, a time. And again, let me remind you that that scroll contains the title deed to creation. Unlike other title deeds, it doesn't describe what he is going to receive, but it describes 
how he is going to take back all that is rightfully his, how he will execute that and bring that about. So as we begin chapter 6, that scroll is opened and its seals are broken. And the unrolling of this, of this scroll marks the beginning of God's judgment and wrath poured out upon a rebellious and sinful world. And it also marks the fact that God, is Christ, is taking back from the usurper, Satan, all that was forfeited by our original parents. And you remember all those things that were forfeited by our parents? I mean, the things like their intimate walk with, with God, their relationship with one another. They forfeited paradise, the, the perfect garden of Eden. They forfeited even creation. They for, forfeited their rule over this world. Now Satan is the ruler of this world. They forfeited their freedom. Now they are slaves to sin. They forfeited their very lives. Now death reigns in this world. They forfeited the inheritance of all their descendants. Even That's you and me. And now Christ is about to reclaim all of that. So let me remind you, this is not merely a reclamation of the physical universe. This is a reclaiming of a spiritual kingdom, which includes the very souls of God's elect. So, in other words, it's, this is not only a judgment, it is also a redemption. And the scene now shifts from heaven where the throne is and where the lamb is with the scroll to earth. And that'll be the focus to the remainder of the time until we get to chapter 19 with the arrival of the Lord Jesus. So each of the seven seals represents a specific divine judgment that will be poured out on the earth sequentially. Now, let's remind us where we are in our kind of end time chart. Let's look at that very quickly. And you can see where we are right now. If you'll look at the circle, that's, that points out where we are right now, the focus. That's during this seven-year tribulation, also called Daniel's 70th week. The church has been raptured, and now we are in this, this period. Let's go to our next slide. And this is uh, kind of important for us to understand. Because the seven-year tribulation is what Jesus refers to back in chapter 3 and verse 10 of Revelation as the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. And everything, now all the tribulation, all the judgment is going to occur within these, this seven-year period and is contained in seven seals that will be opened sequentially. The first four seals, which, are, which contain horses and riders, are happening in the very first part of the tribulation, what Jesus refers to as the beginning of birth pangs. The fifth seal kind of overlaps from the from the first part of the tribulation into the great tribulation. That's what Jesus called it, the time of great tribulation. There will never be a tribulation like this in the world. And the sixth seal and the seventh seal make up the second half 
The seventh seal, as you can see there, contains the trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet contains seven bowl judgments, which, after which it results in the battle of Armageddon. So what I'm showing you is that all the judgments of Revelation occur within this seven-year period with these various names. Uh, it's divided into two parts, into the beginning of birth pains and into the great revelation. So today, we're looking at the first four seals, and we're looking at the beginning of the end. We're looking at the birth pains that are beginning. So um, just a reminder that the unfolding of these seven seals parallel Jesus' description of the end time in Matthew chapter 24. And we'll try to make that connection for you as we go along. But for now, let me re just remind you that Jesus likened the unfolding of these events to a woman's birth pains. He says that just as a mother's uh, labor pains increase in frequency and intensity as she gets nearer the time of delivery, so all the judgments of the tribulation are going to increase in intensity and frequency as we near the end. Until Christ appears with his, in his great, uh, great blazing glory. So the first four seals cover the period Jesus described in Matthew 24, 8 as the beginning of birth pains. As terrible as these things are, they're just the beginning. So we open the first seal. And with the first seal, there emerges a white rider, a rider on a white horse. And what does he bring? He brings false peace. Look at verse 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So, having taken the seal, the scroll, from his father's hand, the Lord Jesus is now going to open the first seal. And it all begins with one of the four living creatures. They were stationed around the throne, each of the four corners. And the first living creature gives this pronouncement, this command, come. And when he gives this command, here comes a white horse with a rider on it. And when he comes, he emerges. Uh, this white horse is, is bearing this, this rider. And people have had various ideas about what this, this means. Horses, in general, in the Orient and in Scripture, are, are associated with triumph and majesty and, con and conquest. Oriental people love horses. They just symbolize strength and, and power and conquering. And that's what these horses are representative of here. They're, they're, they are forces of conquest. Now, some identify the one who sits on this white horse as Christ because they look back at Revelation chapter 19. And when Christ comes, he's riding a white horse. He's, he has a crown. 
And so they, they identify him as Christ. But there are several reasons why this cannot be Christ. First of all, since Christ broke the, the seal, it's not logical that he would come from the seal. Uh, secondly, uh, Christ doesn't come in response to the command of angels. He commands angels. This writer wears a crown, but it's a Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. It's something you got for winning at the games. It was awarded to you. Christ, when he comes in chapter 19, is wearing a diademos, diadems, royal crown. He's a real king. And unlike this writer who carries a bow, Christ carries a sword. And finally, Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, not at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, others identify him as the Antichrist. But since the other three, the other three riders and horses, as we are going to see, are, represent impersonal forces, it's best to see this rider as an impersonal force as well. And what is the result of this rider coming on the scene? Well, it's a temporary world peace. It's a, it's a false peace. However, the agent of this false peace will be the Antichrist. As we will see, he will play a primary role in brokering this peace for the world. And do you remember the first thing that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 when, they began to, when he began to talk about the end times? He tells them there in 24 and verse 4, he says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You see, before the terrors of the tribulation break loose, there is going to be a time of world peace. And there's going to be a person involved in the making of that peace, and he is going to present himself as a Messiah, as a Savior of the world, as one who brings peace to the world. And he's going to be believed, and he's going to be followed. Now, the thing to notice, though, is that, as Jesus warned, this is a deceptive peace. The world is going to be lured into a sense of false security by following this person. The rider who comes, he has a bow, but no arrows. And he has been honored with a, with a crown, revealing that his conquering involves a bloodless victory. You see, his crown is a Stephanos, the winner's crown. He's no real king. He's no real monarch. He doesn't have a diadem. He has a crown that has been awarded him by the world because he has been able to do what nobody has been able to do before, and that is to bring about a world peace, even temporarily. So he will conquer, not by battle, but by cunning and deceit. Second Thessalonians is a long passage describing that. His, his quest is kind of a Cold War victory, as it were, by, not by conflict, but by agreement. And even as the final doom of the world approaches, Antichrist will promise a golden age of peace and prosperity 
And people want that so badly that they will follow along. They'll honor him. They'll exalt him. Uh, he will be a celebrity. He will be even worshipped. The world's so desperate for international peace that that becomes the bait for this satanic trap that he lures people in. Longing for security and safety, they just give in. Antichrist says, I'm the one who can provide that. He will particularly perceive deceive Israel. This is a people who have, who have so long longed for peace. And he tells us in, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, he says, He will make a firm covenant with the many, that is Israel, for one week. Now remember that week is not a week of days, but it's a week of years, seven years. This is talking about that tribulation period. But Antichrist's peace with Israel will not last because it tells us there in the last part of that verse, he says, in the middle of the week, that's the, again, the tribulation period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the false peace that the Antichrist brings is going to come to an abrupt halt somewhere in the first part of that tribulation period, that first three and a half years, and he is going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He is going to be serve as a treacherous person against the people of Israel and bring a, an attack against this people. There can be no peace until the Prince of Peace sets up his kingdom. You know, the Bible repeatedly warns about the lure of a false peace. That happened just before the destruction of the, the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah talked about the prophets of that day. And you know what they were saying? It says in, in Jeremiah 6, 14, they said, peace, peace. But he says, there is no peace. And he cried out to the Lord in, in Jeremiah 14 and verse 13. And he says, ah, Lord. I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. And the Lord replied in verse 14, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and deception of their, of their own minds. Paul talks about this future false peace in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Doesn't it seem incredible that the world hovering on the brink of disaster could be so deceived? Yet, that is precisely what happened on a smaller scale just before the beginning of World War II. Adolf Hitler spelled out in detail his plan for world conquest in his book called Mein Kampf. That book was published at least 10 years before the world, world War II broke out. Yet, incredibly, 
even though they had read his plan. Many people, with the Western allies, and particularly Britain and, and, and France, persisted in believing Hitler's claim that he was a man of peace. They stood idly by while he reoccupied the Rhineland, which had become a demilitarized zone after World War I. Then he also he abrogated the Versailles Treaty, and then he annexed Austria and Sudanland and Czechoslovakia, desperate to appease Hitler uh, and avoid war. Britain's prime minister at that time, Neville Chamberlain, met with the Nazi dictator in Munich, in 1938. And upon his return, Chamberlain waved a piece of paper in the air containing a worthless promise of peace from Hitler, and he proclaimed that this was a peace with honor and a peace for our time. When Winston Churchill, one of the few that was not taken in by this deception, stood up in the House of Commons to object, he was shouted down by everyone on the chamber floor. Deception was nearly universal. Everybody bought it. Only after Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 were the Allies forced to acknowledge the fact that this man is bent on world conquest. By then it was too late to avoid the catastrophe of the world, of Second World War. And listen, that's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Look at our world today. Does that scare you, what you see in our world today? How, how fragile everything is? And listen, when someone comes and claims that they can provide peace, especially when they're in a position of power and advantage, you know what happens? People say, oh, yes, yes, that's what we want. That's what we want. And people will buy into it. The world, Satan, controls the media. He speaks to the minds of people the way he chooses. He's in control of those things. And this will be a tool that the Antichrist will use, and there will be a call for world peace, and people will be glad to participate. So the first seal brings forth a white horse with a rider, and he brings a false peace. The second seal then is open. And there comes a red rider. He brings with him warfare. Verse 3 says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. So when the world is, is all sensing peace and harmony, suddenly that peace is going to be shattered. Just as World War II followed the deceptive peace promoted by Hitler, so devastating wars will spread throughout the world. And it will be a collapse of that false peace. And here, friends, the story turns ugly, and it remains ugly for the remainder of the time. As the lamb broke the second seal, he heard the, that second living creature say, Come. And 
With that command comes a rider on a white horse, and he, or excuse me, on a red horse, and this red horse, red, of course, is the color of fire and of blood, and it is a, a graphic picture of war. God's judgment descends on the false peace of the Antichrist, and he brings about war upon the earth. Now, I want, I want to call your attention to something. It says, to him it was granted, it was granted to take peace from the earth. All that is going to happen is at the will of God. God is sovereignly in control. This is the Lamb breaking the seal. This is God's judgment upon the earth. This is not man's work. This is not Satan's work. This is God bringing about judgment upon the world. It's he who holds the, the scroll, and it's the lamb who breaks that, those seals. Sometimes early in the first half of the tribulation period, peace vanishes from the earth. And Jesus describes, describes this time in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. See, men will slay one another on an unprecedented scale, violence, slaughter will become commonplace. All the scriptures don't give us any detail about this. I mean, considering modern day warfare, nuclear, chemical, biological, we can just imagine that this will be an incredible holocaust that comes upon the world. John also noted, he says, a great sword was given to the writer. Now, the sword that he talks about here is not that long, double-edged sword that uh, some uh, soldiers use, but it's the shorter stabbing sword. They call it a stabbing sword. It's the one they carried into battle. And it was also that same sword that was commonly used by assassins because of its, of its length. And... It's giving us a picture here, this great sword is giving us a picture here of the extent of war that is going to occur. And it's, this, is, this is going to degenerate into assassinations and coups and rebellions and revolts and battles and ultimately massacres. Every kind of bloody warfare you can imagine. So here again, the final Antichrist is going to play a major role in these wars. See, he was very skilled at brokering peace, but he's also very skilled at war. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 24 describes his career as a warrior. He says, he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. That is the people who come to, to faith in Christ during the time of the tribulation. And Antichrist is going to set up the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about later. And this is going to set off a massive conflict. And it's described for us in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. Just listen to the war that's going to happen. Then the king, this is the Antichrist, will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. 
And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for, for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. He says, I am God. I am supreme. But instead, verse 38 continues, he will honor a God of fortresses. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the, the many and will parcel out land for a price. Come and follow me. I'll give you rewards. Give you this control of this area and you control of this area. He's going to do it like it's always been done. And at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries overflow them and pass through. He's conquering everywhere he goes. And he will also enter the beautiful land. That's uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries. And the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver. And over all the precious things of Egypt. In other words, he's going to go in there and he's going to take control of all the oil and the resources that are needed to carry on a war. And it, and, and it says, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and to annihilate many. And he will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, and he will come to his end, and no one will help him. And we'll learn now that that's when Christ comes. He's done. See, as the head of a western confederacy, Antichrist initially portrays himself as a person of peace. The one who will give the world this beautiful peace that they so desire. But then it's going to appear, then it's going to come to their attention what he really wants. He wants world conquest. He wants to be God. And he's going to come against even every kind of religion. He's going to exalt himself, and then these things are all going to touch off these conflicts, and it's going to be war, 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 until the very end. And finally, the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and Antichrist will be tossed into the lake of fire forever. The wars that begin here in the opening... And they go through all the whole time till the very end. That brings us to the third rider, the black rider. And he brings famine. This is what it says when he, in verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So when the, the lamb breaks the third seal, there comes a, forth a black horse with a rider on it bringing 
famine. Black is associated with death in general, but specifically in the scripture with famine. And famine is the logical consequence of worldwide war. As food supplies are interrupted and the, even the farmlands and so forth are torn up in the, in the course of battle. I mean, it's amazing what the, the little thing that we have gone through comparatively uh, with you know, facing shortages of things in, the, in a time in which we live even now. And Jesus predicted the future famine in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and various places. There will be famines and earthquakes. Now, God has used famines before as judgments. It's, it's not uncommon. And um, it's, uh, but this is going to be a famine as unlike anything that human history has ever seen. And this writer is carrying a pair of scales. Those scales uh, indicate, picture for us, rationing. There's simply not going to be enough food for everyone. Uh, food's going to be measured out to everyone. And, and he says that the following this appearance of the black horse, he says he heard something um, like the voice in the center of the four living creatures. Now, this, is the, this must be the voice of God because those four living creatures surround the throne. And his pronouncements reveal how bad this is really going to be. It's going to be horrible. And he says that a quart of wheat, which is barely enough to sustain one person for a day, and a denarius, which represents what a worker made in one day, everything you make goes to buy barely enough food for one day. So what do you do? And then he talks about the fact that there are the three quarts of barley for a denarius. Barley is what you fed, the low nutritional food that you fed to your animals. But you could get more of it, so you could buy three quarts of that, maybe to try to feed your family with lower quality food, but everybody's going to be struggling. I mean, like the United States... In the, in the times of the Great Depression, or like Europe after World War II, or like in many war-torn countries of our day, people standing in line, food lines, wanting, desiring food. And people's labor, will everything it takes just to get food, just to survive. In light of those extreme conditions, Jesus, uh, the Lord says, don't, uh, don't mess with the wine and grain. See, one of, the, one of the strategies oftentimes in war is to destroy food sources, to keep the, uh, the fellow army from getting it. And God says, listen, it's going to be so bad, I don't advise you to do that. A deceptive peace followed by worldwide war, and on, on its heels comes this great famine, and it escalates the world into an incredible chaos. And we come to the fourth seal and when it's broken, there's an ashen rider that comes forth, and he is bringing pestilence. It tells us in verse 7 that when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it, and it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. 
So the fourth seal follows the same pattern as the previous ones. The lamb broke the fourth seal. The living creature, fourth living creature, cries out to in command to the rider to come forth. And when he comes forth, he is an ashen rider. Now, ashen is the word sometimes used in the King James of pale, but it's it's the Greek word from we get from which we get our English word chlorophyll or chlorine, and it refers to that pale yellow-green color of those substances. And this horse's color vividly portrays the pale green pallor of death that characterizes the decomposition of, of corpses. It's a picture of a dead body is what it is. And the rider who sat on it had the ominous name death. Death on a massive scale that is the inevitable result of widespread war and famine. And in this gruesome, terrifying scene, John sees following death, Hades. Now, Hades is another word for, for the grave. In other words, what is this picture? Everywhere there's death, there, there are graves. It's picturing bodies piled up in mass graves, bodies decomposing, rotting, lying around, the vultures on them. It's, this is a picture, it's a gruesome picture. This is death, carnage, unlike anything unimaginable, ever imagined by anybody on this world. And you see, it says authority is given to death and Hades to destroy a fourth of the population of the world. Our world today has a little over 7 billion people. If you took a fourth of that, you're looking at a one, at least 1.8 billion people dead in just a short time. We've never seen anything like that. And death is, I mean, but I think if you think about this in terms of our our in the age of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, it's terrifyingly plausible. In death, we use four tools in his grim task. He says he will use the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And pestilence here probably refers primarily to disease, although it is broad enough to include things like earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, um, those kind of natural disasters. It could also refer to the effects of biological and chemical weapons upon people's lives. But you, if you think about it throughout history, disease has killed far more people than war ever has. More Union and Confederate soldiers died from disease than died in battle. An estimated 30 million people died from the great influenza uh, outbreak in 1918 uh, and 19, and, and that's more than three times the number of the estimated 8.5 million soldiers that died in World War II. In addition, several million more died at about the same time in an outbreak of typhus in Russia and and Romania and Poland. See, in a world ravaged by war and famine, disease is, is inevitable. No supplies, medical, so everything is interrupted in war. 
At first glance, you, you, the inclusion of wild beasts with war and, and famine and disease is a little puzzling. You know, since most of the animals that are, you know, dangerous to humans, they're, they're either extinct or, or small in number or in isolated populations somewhere. But there is one, there's, there are some wild animals that today that take a great toll upon our world. One of those is the rat. Rats thrive in populated areas. And rats are notorious for causing death by eating up huge quantities of grain and, and food supplies and for transmitting diseases. One of the most infectious uh, occurrences of rat-borne disease was the bubonic plague that occurred in the 14th century. And it wiped out, some estimate, up to a third of the population of Europe. See, in a world ravaged by war and famine and disease, the, the rat population may run wild. It could also include things like locusts. Have you seen the pictures of what's going on in India now where the ground is covered and you can't even see it and you can't even see the trees because of these things that cover everything, consuming food supplies? So the first four seals describe awe-inspiring frightening judgments without, without parallel in human history. Nothing this, de this devastating has ever happened. And yet, remember, this is the beginning of the end. It gets far worse. That's gonna, it's going to be a time when the world of sinners is going to realize that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. There's going to be no escape that. But remember, God is doing two things here. God is bringing judgment upon a sinful and rebellious world, but God is also bringing redemption. Do you know that there are going to be people that are saved, many people that are going to be saved during the tribulation? Because they're going to see the horror of the world and there are going to be people that are going to remember. They sat in a service like this and they heard about it. And they're going to cry out to God and say, God, save me. And all Israel is going to be saved. Israel is going to see that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. They're going to turn to him and they're going to be saved. There are going to be people that are saved, but you know what? They're not going to be like the church. They're not taken out of all the horror. They're going to be in the middle of all that. They may be believers, but as we read, sometimes they get wiped out. Sometimes they get the, the brunt of all that's going on. Can I tell you, you don't have to wait to the tribulation to get saved, to, to come to know Christ. Do you understand that Jesus Christ has already taken all the horror of the tribulation upon himself already? He's already taken all of your judgment. He's taken all of that horror upon himself. When he went to the cross, God put our sin on him and he was enduring what we deserve there. And he overcame it. And he's alive. And he's the one who's pouring out the judgment to cause people to see their need of him. And friend, you don't have to wait till then. 
if you are willing to turn, if you're willing to turn from being in control of your own life. You know, when we hear something about the Antichrist and him wanting to take over the world rule, do you know that we're all guilty of the same sin? We all want to rule our own little world. We all want to rule our own lives. That's the nature of sin. We want to be in control. And God calls on us to turn from being in control of our own lives, to yield ourselves, to surrender ourselves to him. And if we will do that, if we'll put our faith in Jesus Christ, he will save us from that wrath. That's what it means to be saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. And we're given a place of glory with him where we will praise him forever and ever. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to encourage you simply to say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Lord. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And I, as best as I know how, I want to give you the control of my life. I want to follow you. My trust is in you. And if you'll do that, the moment you make that decision, you can be saved. You will be saved. You'll be a new creation. And listen, when he comes, there's coming something before all this happens, and that's the rapture. We're gone. We're out of here. And we're going to be in heaven praising him. So if you're with him, you can go now. And I want to ask you today as we're going to sing a song, a final song, just a couple of verses. I'm going to ask you to to stand where you are, and I want you to just, in your own heart, in your own mind, I want to ask you, if you would, to evaluate your life and ask yourself, you know, do, am I really, truly a Christian? Do I really know Christ? Have I really given him the control of my life? Have I put my faith in him alone? And if you haven't, I would encourage you to call out to him in this moment. I'm not going to ask you to come down here considering the circumstances. But you know what I would ask you to do? I would ask you as you think about this, consider maybe you'd like to come back after everyone's going out and just come back and talk to me about that. It would be fine. We can do that. Or maybe you'd like to text me or call me. You can do that. But this is a really important decision that every person needs to make. So I encourage you. Let's stand. Let's, uh, as, before we sing, I want us to pray. Father, thank you for this revelation of truth. It's hard to hear in many ways, but it's also wonderful to know, God, that you are the God of redemption as well as the God of judgment. And we thank you for the cross that makes it possible for us to be free from all that. And we, we praise you and we honor you and glorify you for it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to evaluate our own lives honestly. And I pray that you give us the courage and the ability to surrender to you and make you our Savior. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing.
thank you for being here today. Truly wonderful to see your the faces. Let me just remind you, we're going to dismiss with the back rows first, and as the each row goes, then you can follow together. And remember to please, if you would mind, us go outside before you begin to fellowship. If you would like to pick up uh, the Bible fellowship materials, you can do so going to the fellowship hall, or the, excuse me, the children's church area, and the Materials laid there on the table by classes. Pick that up, and then you can go out the doors right by the, the pantry. And until then, we hope we'll see you next week. May, may God bless you. So close that I